Alright, and we'll go ahead. So the topic this week is creation and its relation to God's work on the earth. Um, and our verse is, on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And so, of course, the world began at creation, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So this is the beginning of God's uh, purpose for the earth. Of course, it begins with creation and creating the earth. Um, since that time, until Paul, God was revealing his plan for the earth. Um, so you have Luke one seventy. Where this is uh, John's, the Baptist's father, Zacharias. Uh, it says, starting in verse 67, And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and have raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. So you have here... Uh, things that he was speaking about Jesus coming to Israel to save them uh, since the world began by the mouth of the prophets. So that phrase, since the world began. Uh, Peter also uses that same phrase in Acts 3.21 when he is preaching the kingdom to the Jews there in Jerusalem. He talks about the time of restitution of all things. Uh, he says, in verse 19, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So since the world began, he has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets things concerning uh, Israel's kingdom and their Messiah. And so we know from Paul in Ephesians 3.9, after the mystery was revealed, we now know God's plan uh, kept secret since the world began. Uh, it says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. And so he's made known his will uh, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together all things in Christ, both in heaven and in the earth. So that's uh, the full purpose of God in the dispensation of the fullness of times to gather all things in Christ. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago gathering things in Christ in heaven through the body of Christ and things in Christ on the earth through the nation of Israel. Uh, Romans 16.25 says he revealed to Paul the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. So you had the mystery that was kept secret, and then you have a prophecy that was spoken since the world began. And so creation and the creation of the earth uh, has to do with God's purpose for the earth. And so you have things in creation uh, that relate to how he works through Israel and with Israel uh, through the earth and through his creation. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, in the Old Testament, you have types and shadows. So there are things in the Old Testament that are types and shadows of things that Jesus would fulfill, things that would be fulfilled in the kingdom, uh, things that would be filled with the new covenant made with Israel. In Colossians 2.17, Paul says, uh, verse 16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or the new moon or a Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body 
is of Christ. So this should tell you that the new covenant is not fulfilled in the church because he says these things here, the uh, judge you in meter and drink or in respect of an holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days. These were all things that Israel was commanded to do in their law, right? They couldn't eat certain meats. They had to keep certain holy days. Uh, they had to keep the Sabbath days. Uh, Paul says, don't let no man judge you over these things because they are a shadow of things to come. So Paul says those things that they're a shadow of are still yet to come, right? They're still future. And he says, but the body of Christ, uh, the body is of Christ, talking about the church, right, is of Christ today. So he says those things, those shadows that were given in the law are still yet future, right? They haven't been fulfilled because they have to do with Israel's new covenant and their kingdom. But what you have here is they are shadows, right? They're a shadow of something else to be fulfilled. Uh, this is what the writer of Hebrews talks about. Uh, Hebrews is about the new covenant and uh, the fulfillment of it. In Hebrews 8, 5, you see where it says, uh, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. Uh, and this is talking about the work of the priest. Right? They were a shadow of heavenly things. And he goes on to talk about how Christ was that high priest who fulfilled uh, the sacrifice uh, once for all. He doesn't have to do it continually like the priest did, where they had to go in every year and offer the sacrifices for the people. Jesus Christ did it once. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying what they did in the Old Testament the priest offering that sacrifice uh, was a shadow of what Christ would do. Uh, Hebrews 9, 9, um, it says, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So the same thing here, right? It was a figure, right, of what was to come and what Christ would fulfill. And then Hebrews 10, 1, it says, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers there into perfect. So again, it's a shadow. The sacrifices that they did uh, in the Old Testament were a shadow of the sacrifice that Christ would do. And so you have this in the Old Testament. You have types and shadows. Um, if you go to Ezekiel 14, Job and Noah and Daniel uh, are used as a type of remnant Israel. And so many people might say, well, it says since the prophets, and the prophets didn't begin until the nation of Israel. Um, but it says since the world began. Noah was a prophet, right? He prophesied a judgment to come. Um, Job, many people say Job lived probably in the age of Abraham, somewhere around that time. So he would have been before the nation of Israel. Uh, but yet, Ezekiel 14 says they were examples of the remnant Israel. If you look at verse 12, it says... The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out mine hand upon it, and will break the staff of the bread thereof, and will send famine upon it, and will cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they should deliver, but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. If I cause noisome beasts to pass through the land, and they spoil it, so that it be desolate, that no man may pass through because of the beast, Though these three men were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters. They only shall be delivered, but the land shall be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, Sword, go through the land, so that I cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they only shall be delivered themselves. Or if I send a pestilence unto that land and pour out my fury upon it, and blood to cut off from it man and beast, though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, 
as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall uh, but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. For thus saith the Lord God, how much more when I send my four sore judgments upon Jerusalem, the sword and the famine, and the noisome beast and the pestilence to cut off from it man and beast, yet behold, there shall be left a remnant that shall be brought forth, both sons and daughters. Behold, they shall come forth unto you, and you shall see their way and their doings. And you shall be comforted concerning the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem, even concerning all that I have brought upon it. And they shall comfort you when you see their ways and their doings, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done it, saith the Lord God. And so this is a prophecy of the deliverance of the righteous through tribulation, through judgment. Um, and he says, same thing for Noah, Daniel, and Job. Right? They went through tribulation, but because of their righteousness, they were saved from it. Um, it says... Their daughters and sons are going to be saved if they're not righteous. Only Job, Noah, and Daniel themselves because they were righteous. So, of course, you know Noah and the flood, uh, he went through the judgment there, but he and the eight righteous with him were saved. Uh, same thing with Job. His family died. His wife uh, told him to curse God, right? She wasn't righteous. But Job was saved through that tribulation and got blessed in the end, which is a picture of remnant Israel. They're going to go through the tribulation, through the judgment, but in the end they'll be blessed by entering into the kingdom. I mean, the same thing with Daniel, right? He was judged and thrown into the lion's den, but God saved him uh, through it. See, that's what uh, it's saying here, right? These three went through it, yet they still lived after it and were blessed uh, because of their righteousness. So the point here being that Noah was before the nation of Israel, but yet he is still a picture of remnant Israel. And so that's uh, what I believe those passages are talking about. Since the world began... Uh, God has spoken by his holy prophets, but also had types and shadows in the Old Testament uh, of how he would deal with Israel and deal with the earth. Um, so tonight we're going to look at creation and how God uh, uses creation in its relation to the nation of Israel. Um, God created the beast, um, and God uses beast in his dealings with Israel. Um, so you see how creation and the nation of Israel are um, tied together, right? They were promised a land uh, here on the earth, right? And so they're going to be married to that land. Uh, God's going to set his kingdom in Jerusalem, right? In that promised land. Um, but you have the sheep and the oxen as sacrifices. Uh, in Leviticus 9, in the law, it talks about the sacrifices that they had to do. It says, unto the children of Israel thou shalt speak, saying, Take ye a kid of the goats for a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both of the first year, without blemish, for a burnt offering. So they had to take uh, the kid of the goat, or the lamb, uh, and the ox uh, for their burnt offering. And then also in Leviticus 5, verse 7. It says, And if he be not able to bring a lamb, then he shall bring forth his trespass, which he hath committed, two turtle doves or two young pigeons unto the Lord, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So if he didn't have a lamb, he could bring uh, two young pigeons or two turtle doves. So you have here right, animals being used uh, in God's dealing with Israel with their sacrifices uh, under the law. If you go to 1 Kings 17, verse 4 through 6, God uses animals to judge in his dealings with Israel. Um, that would be the next passage we look at. 1 Kings 17, 4-6, it's the ravens that feed Elijah. So he also used animals to 
uh, provide provision uh, for Elijah. It says, And it shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. So he had ravens bringing provision to Elijah the prophet when he was uh, hiding there by the brook. If you go to 2 Kings 2, so this is the passage of God using bears to inflict judgment. In 2 Kings 2, 22-24, it says, So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. And he went up from thence unto Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city, and mocked him, and said unto him, Go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. And he turned back, and looked on them, and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood, and tear forty and two children of them. See, so you have here these young children mocking the prophet of God, right? Saying, go up, thou bald head, go up, thou bald head. Right, they're mocking him, and so he curses them, and it says two she-bears come out and kill 42 of them. So you think about this judgment. Um, God using animals right, to inflict judgment on these people mocking uh, the prophet. And of course, you have the story of Balaam and the donkey, talking donkey, how God used the donkey right, to speak to Balaam to show him the angel. And so you have this throughout Israel's, um, God's dealings with Israel, uh, where he uses animals, right, Think about the well in Jonah, swallowing Jonah, right, to make him go preach to Nineveh. So you have stories all throughout where God uses animals, creation, in his dealings with the nation of Israel. Um, today, God does not use animals to operate amongst the body of Christ, right? He's using his word and his spirit. First uh, Thessalonians 2.13, Paul talks about the word of God working effectually in the Thessalonians who believed the word of God. Right, and it worked effectually in them because they believed it. First Corinthians two, verse ten through fourteen. It says, But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit, for the spirit searcheth all things, yea the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in words, which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And so we have the Spirit today, if you're saved, right, who can show you spiritual things through the Word of God. Uh, it can give you the understanding you need. Uh, to understand spiritual things. In Galatians 5, verse 16 through 18, uh, Paul says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. You see, you have walking in the Spirit and being led of the Spirit. And so that's how God works today, not through his creation to provide signs or judgment, um, but through his word and through his spirit. Um, you also have trees and plants as types and figures throughout Israel's history. Um, specifically, three that show up often are the olive, the fig, and the grape. In Psalms 52, 8, 
It says, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. And so this is David saying, I am uh, a green olive tree in the house of God. Um, and a green olive tree um, is significant to Israel because in Romans 11, when Paul is dealing with the nation of Israel, he talks about this olive tree and how you have some branches cut off of this tree and others graft in. Um, we've dealt with this before, how um, the ones graft in weren't necessarily Gentiles, but it could have been the lowly in Israel. And when you study uh, Jesus' earthly ministry, he says, I'm taking the kingdom from you and giving it to a nation bearing the fruit thereof. And that nation would have been the believing remnant in Israel. And so that's what it's talking about here in Romans 11. Um, but you have this throughout Israel where they're likened to an olive tree. Um, also, it's not on your paper, but in Zechariah, I think it's 14, it talks about two olive trees and they're keeping the two candlesticks lit uh, forever. And Zechariah is saying, who are these two olive trees? And it says, they're my two witnesses. Then when you go to Revelation, it talks about the two witnesses that come to testify before God. It says, these are the two olive trees. So again, you just have these uh, types and figures where God uses olive tree to represent two witnesses or two prophets there in the end times. Um, you have the fig tree in Matthew 21, verse 18 through 20. Many know the story of the fig tree and Jesus cursing it. He says, Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon, but leaves only and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? So I believe this is a, an example that Jesus is showing to the nation of Israel. Right? He came to the nation of Israel, and they didn't bear any fruit. Um, and so he cursed them, right, and they withered away. And so this would have been an um, example of the Jewish leaders there at that time. Right? He came to them, and they weren't bearing the fruit. Right? He says, you ignore the weightier matters of the law. Right? You're hypocrites. You don't bear the fruit. Um, and so you're going to be cast into the fire, like John the Baptist talks about. If you don't bring fruit thereof, you will be honed down and cast into the fire. So you have this example of a fig tree, right, and whether or not Israel bears fruit. Um, John 15, Jesus talks about being the true vine. Uh, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is a husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So this whole chapter, Jesus talks about being uh, this true vine, and how you have to be in the true vine if you're going to bear fruit. And so you have, again, this relation of a vine, of a plant, uh, and it's reference to Jesus as Israel's Messiah, and them having to be in him to bear the fruit. Also in Isaiah 5, it talks about a vine. Uh, it says, Now will I sing to my well-beloved the song of my beloved, touching his vineyard. My well-beloved have a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it. And also made a wine press therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes and it brought forth wild grapes. So you have here uh, this vineyard uh, and this gardener that plants the vineyard says he planted the choicest vine but it brought forth wild grapes and again this is a reference to Israel 
to where they were planted by God, but yet it was the lowly, the outcast of Israel that actually brought forth the fruit. It wasn't the Jewish leaders. And so that's what this is uh, talking about and how God would judge those who did not bear the fruit. So all throughout Israel you have um, these references to plants and trees and how they are symbolic to things uh, and dealings with the nation of Israel. Today, God uses marriage as an example or as a type of the body of Christ. Right? He doesn't use plants or trees in bearing fruit uh, because it's not about the fruit you bear, whether or not you're saved or righteous. Right? It's your faith in Christ and what he's done. Ephesians 5, 22 through um, 33, he uses marriage as an example of what the body of Christ is today. Uh, he says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so that the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, and as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man yet ever hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For you are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this call shall man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So here he says he speaks a great mystery, speaking about the body of Christ. Right, and how marriage is a picture of that. Um, he's not teaching here, as many take and say, all oh, the church is the bride of Christ. No, he says, like marriage, where you become one flesh, and the husband is the head of that one flesh, right, so is the church. Right? We become one with Christ, but Christ is our head, and we are to submit under him. Right? And so that's what he's saying here. Uh, because Christ loved the church, the husband should love the wife. And because the church is to submit to the head, the wife should submit uh, to the husband as her head. Um, but he says, he's talking about the church here, right? We are flesh of his flesh, uh, bones of his bones, he says there in verse 30, right? He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So Christ here, um, Paul here is talking about uh, marriage and how it is a picture of the body of Christ, right? He doesn't use plants and trees and examples of if you don't bear fruit, you're going to be cast down, right? Or God's going to cut you off, right? This is how God deals with the nation of Israel in their covenant, um, also in creation, you have the sun, moon, and stars being created in Genesis 1. Uh, and it's interesting that even back here in Genesis 1, he says that he creates these things in verse 14 uh, for signs and seasons. It says, And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And so back here in creation, he says that the sun and moon and stars are for signs, seasons, days, and years. Um, you think about the signs that are given to the nation of Israel. Um, it's interesting how God will use the sun and the stars as those signs for them. Um, it's also interesting, Joshua 10, verse 12 and 13 
says, Then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up Amorite and before, before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. So you have here this battle where Joshua wanted the sun to remain out so they could see, and they could uh, kill their enemies, avenge their enemies. Um, and so Joshua says, sun stand still. He prays before God and says, sun stand still, and it happens. So you have here God using the sun, right, in this uh, battle that's won in Israel, where God uses his power uh, to stop the sun. Uh, to make it stand still so that it says it stays light for about a whole day. So you think about a 24-hour day uh, where it's light the whole time. Um, if you go to Matthew 24, 29 through 30. It says, Immediately after the tribulations of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light. And the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with the power and great glory. And so it says, immediately after the tribulations of those days, shall the sun be darkened, right? Um, and so this is a sign in the heavens, right? Where God's using the sun, the moon, and the stars as signs of his return uh, after the tribulation. Uh, many people talk about the solar eclipse and the lunar eclipse, and these are signs that God's coming back. Well, first of all, we're not in the tribulation, right? Because it says that would be the worst it's ever been in the history of Earth. We've not gone through anything like that. Um, and it says this is immediately after that, right? And the sun's going to be darkened. In the solar eclipse, it's still light, right? It gets a little bit darker, like it's almost covered by a cloud, but it's still light outside, right? So here it says it's going to be darkened. So I imagine it's going to be pitch black. Um... But I just thought that's interesting, these signs. And even in Genesis, it talks about, God says, I'm giving it as a sign. Um, Revelation 6, 12, you have the fulfillment of this. Where it says, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. So it says the sun becomes black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. So again, that's the fulfillment of uh, the sign of the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, we are given no signs today. Right? Paul says to look to heaven because Christ's return is imminent. Um, in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 23, Gentiles were never promised a sign. The body of Christ was never promised a sign. Uh, it was the Jews that were given signs. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21. He says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. So he says the Jews require a sign, right? And the Greeks seek after wisdom. Today we preach, right? We preach the gospel. And that's how people are saved. We don't give them a sign, right? We give them the truth of the gospel of grace. Uh, and those that believe are saved. In 1 Corinthians 14, 22, 
in the initial stages of this dispensation of grace, there were gifts given because the word of God was not fulfilled yet. Uh, and Paul says, Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. So he says the gift of tongues are a sign to them, uh, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Uh, well, the sign of the sun being darkened was given to the apostles, right? Jesus is talking to his apostles there. Um, it's a sign for the believing remnant when they know, right, Christ is coming back in the clouds when they see the sun darkened and all. So that's a sign for believing remnant, right, to know. Here he says the sign of tongues is for the unbelieving, right? Um, but that was only a temporary sign because in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, he says, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. So you have there where tongues shall cease, right? They're not happening today. They have ceased. Um, in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, he talks about the gifts were given until uh, the fullness of the body of Christ has come in. It says he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God into a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together, and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh the increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So he talks about these gifts being given until uh, we all come to the unity of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Um, and so that has already happened, right? That happened in Paul's day. And those gifts ceased, right? The word of God, we have it now. He talks about uh, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. We now have the word of God to where that shouldn't be happening, right? This is where you go for your doctrine. If you're tossed to and fro, it's because you're not established in the doctrine here, right? You don't need a word of the Lord, right? Which is what people say, right? God's given me a word. Or they speak in tongues and they say it's something God gave them to say, but nobody understands what they're saying. Right, um, that's how you get tossed to and fro because you're not established in the doctrine that you already have in the Word of God. So God's not given signs today, right? He's given His Word, and that's uh, how we are to live our life according to that. Um, and then back to Genesis in Genesis two one through three, another thing you have in creation that is uh, in relation to God's dealing with the nation of Israel and His plan for the earth um, is this day of rest. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. So you have here God resting on the seventh day. All right, six days he created, and on the seventh day he rested. Um, and of course this was given in the law. Um, but it clearly says that God rested on the seventh day as a picture of Israel's rest and uh, the law that they would be given, and then also the rest that they would have in their fulfillment of the kingdom. 
um, Exodus 31, 16 through 18, it says, Wherefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations for a perpetual covenant is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave unto Moses, when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. So this is, of course, the giving of the law. Uh, but he says this covenant uh, and this law of keeping the Sabbath given to Israel is a sign between me and the children of Israel, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So it's a perpetual covenant uh, for all generations, right there to keep it throughout all their generations. And what this uh, law represents, I believe, is the nation of Israel is to work and labor and keep the law until they enter into that rest, right? Which is at the end of the work. And that's what you see in creation. God worked and created for six days. Then when he was finished, he was resting, right? He had that rest. Um, if you go to Exodus 35, 2 through 3, we'll see this also in Hebrews. Um, it says, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day there shall be to you an holy day, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whosoever doeth work therein shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your habitation upon the Sabbath day. Right? And so you are to rest, you are to do no work. Right? Six days you work, on the seventh you rest. That was the law they were given. Um, this is a shadow of Israel's future rest when they enter the kingdom. Uh, if you go to Hebrews 4, it talks about this rest that they were to enter. Um, in chapter 3, it talks about the disobedient generation that was going to enter into the promised land, but because of their disobedience, right, they were punished and did not get to. Um, and so after going through that history uh, and using that example, the writer of Hebrews says, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. So he's saying the same is true for us today. Um, we have a promise of entering into this rest, but you make sure you don't come short of it. Right? Make sure you endure to the end. He says, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Right, so again, relating back to that story in the older generation of Israel where they didn't have faith. Right? They saw the giants and were scared. They didn't have faith that God was actually going to give them the land. And so because of their unbelief, right, they didn't uh, keep the law there, and God punished them for it. He says, For we which have believed do enter into a rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man shall fall after the same example of unbelief. So that's what he says here, right? Um, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God, for he that has entered into his rest 
hath also ceased from his own works as God did from his. Right? He's saying, but we haven't got there yet. Right? So let us labor, uh, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Right? So Israel is to keep their law, keep the covenant, until they enter into that rest. Right? And that rest is, of course, the kingdom uh, that they were promised. Our position, though, is not on earth, right? We're not looking and laboring to enter into a earthly kingdom, right? To enter into a rest. Uh, we have a position already in heavenly places, right? And this is what Paul teaches, teaches in Ephesians uh, 1.3. He says we are blessed with spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And in Ephesians 2.6, he says he hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Right? So we have a position in Christ Jesus in the heavenly places, not on this earth. Uh, this kingdom of rest is on the earth, right? That's how we know the writer of Hebrews is not talking to us. Um, Isaiah 11, 6 through 8, Israel's covenant, again, is not just for them, it's for the earth, um, for the animals, the plants, uh, for humanity. Isaiah 11, 6 through 8 says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. So you have here peace throughout the animal kingdom and uh, with humanity. Uh, the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together. So imagine seeing a bear and a cow lying there together, right? Or a wolf and a, uh, a wolf and a lamb, right? That's the ultimate picture of wolves coming and killing the lambs, right? Or wolf in sheep's clothing, right? Coming in to deceive. Think about that piece there where the wolf doesn't want to kill the lamb, right? But they're together eating the grass. Um, that's the piece that will be in the earthly kingdom. Right? So again, you have... Uh, God's plan for the earth is tied to the nation of Israel. It's not just for them, it's for the whole earth. In Revelations 22, 1-5, through 5, it says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on the other side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There should be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So, of course, this is when the earth is made new. It says there is no more curse, right? And this is when the animals have peace, right? Because there is no more curse. Um, and this is very much a picture of what you have in creation. Right, where uh, the Garden of Eden has here on each side of the river the tree of life. So you think about the tree of life where you have there in the Garden of Eden. Um, and then, of course, you have that peace there like Adam had with the animals where they would come to him and he would name them. Right? Um, but just like creation, there will be a rest after God has completed his work on the earth. So I think that is ultimately the picture there that you have in creation. Right, that God is going to do his work on the earth, and at the end there will be uh, this rest. And so we aren't there yet, right? God is still yet to fulfill all his prophecies and fulfill the work that he has planned for the earth. Um, but it will still be fulfilled.
Um, so any thoughts or questions on that?